0: Our sermon text this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Uh, next week, we will be uh, engaged in fall kickoff, an exciting new season of ministry here at the church. And, and we're entering a new exciting season in our study of the book of Romans as we enter into Romans 5 through 8. So I ask that you would listen now as I read... For this is the very word of God, Romans 5, 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. May the Lord bless to our hearts and minds the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, working through your word, you would open our eyes. To see the truth of the gospel, perhaps for the first time, or maybe just simply to see it afresh, and that we would see the gospel in its depth, all of its implications and applications, that we would believe it and confess it, but we would also experience its transforming power in the way that we live We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is an old adage that says something like this, Doctrine divides, but love unites. The big idea behind the adage is that, at its heart, Christian doctrine is not useful, not practical, not genuinely helpful when it comes to real human Living for doctrine, the argument goes, doesn't really aid us in fostering healthy relationships, which we all need. It doesn't provide real help when we have to face real world problems and troubles. No, the the study of doctrine only gives the, the theologically minded among us stuff to fight about and divide over in the church. With the underlying assumption, of course, that even the doctrinal stuff we fight about is, it doesn't really matter to the real issues of real life. Sometimes people might express it a little differently, perhaps with a little more sophistication by saying something like, I'm not so interested in orthodoxy, that is, right belief, right confession of the truth but I'm really more interested in orthopraxy, right? Practice, right? Behavior. I don't really care what you believe. I I only ultimately care how you behave. That's what really matters. And I think you can see this mentality, this anti-doctrine mentality in many churches where you find little to no teaching on historic matters of Christian doctrine But there's lots of practical instruction on how to behave. You might hear lots of topical sermons like three steps to a happy marriage, ways to be a better communicator at work and home, how to deal with difficult people, how to wisely manage your money. In fact, I was talking to someone recently who told me they had been attending a prominent Atlanta church for years. In which they had heard lots of useful sermons about relationships, techniques for a better marriage, ways to overcome setbacks, how to be wise with your finances. But in all those years, they had never heard a sermon on sin or the atonement or the trinity or the nature of justification. You get the picture. And as Reverend Swen said to me during the break, he said, and doesn't it also seem like churches that focus on that are more popular? Well, what should we say to such things? Is Christian doctrine useful for real Christian living? Is it helpful when we face genuine problems, genuine troubles, genuine hardships in this life? Must we know in a fundamental way what we must believe as Christians, or do we simply need practical moral instruction on how we ought to behave like Christians? Well, I will be the first to acknowledge that it is altogether possible to have a sound profession, a sound confession of faith, while failing to live in heartfelt obedience to Christ and His Word. There is indeed such a thing as dead orthodoxy. That's something we should be aware of in the church, and we should war against it. And yet at the same time, the Bible is clear that the ultimate foundation for all right action is in fact sound doctrine what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves before God, that transforms the way we think and this shapes and fuels the way we live. Sound doctrine is the root from which the fruit of sound living grows. And perhaps nowhere in Scripture do we see this connection more clearly than in the works of the Apostle Paul. And perhaps nowhere in the works of the Apostle Paul do we see this connection more clearly than in the book of Romans. As we have seen, here in Romans, Paul is laboring to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing so, he is laying a deep foundation of sound doctrine. He's telling us what is true and what is to be believed in order to, to be a Christian. And yet it's clear that Paul is convinced that this doctrinal foundation is the basis not only for right thinking, but for transformational obedience. For, for Paul, believing what is true is the foundation for living as we ought. And if we take a step back, we can clearly see this in a kind of macro way as we consider the book of Romans as a whole. As we continue to study Romans, we will see that in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul will labor to tell us what is true. And as he does that, he will provide very little in the way of behavioral admonition. And then in Romans 12, as we will see in a number of months... He makes this great pivot in in which having laid this doctrinal foundation, he will then turn and command us saying, therefore, in light of all these truths, this is how we must live. And we'll see beginning in chapter 12, he's going to be very practical, very direct, very specific with all manner of behavioral commands. You see, Paul is clearly convinced that the faith we confess as believers is the this faith, this confession, rightly understood, produces what he calls the obedience of faith. And so if we take a step back, we can see this structure in Romans writ large, but I would suggest to you that at various points along the way, we see the same connection. And I would argue that we see this connection very clearly, this connection between doctrine and practical living, we see this connection very clearly here at the outset of Romans 5. Now, if you've been with us through our study of the book of Romans, then you will know that over the past couple of chapters, Paul has been laboring to establish and prove a very particular doctrinal point that we are justified by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, apart from all works. We've seen that in the opening three chapters, he he labors to show us the need for justification by faith. We need to be justified by faith because we're all sinners. And our deeds fall dreadfully short of the glory of God. So as a result, our deeds could never can never, and will never be able to justify us before the judgment seat of God. Our deeds will only condemn us and leave us under God's wrath. And so in light of this desperate need for justification, which cannot come from our own works, Paul then declares the good news that God has revealed his own righteousness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that through Jesus' death for our sins and through his life and resurrection victory, there is now a ground for our justification before a holy God. So that Paul makes it very clear. By faith in Jesus Christ and by faith alone, the believer is justified. That is, we are declared to be fully and completely in the right before God. Not because of our own works, but because of Jesus Christ and faith in him. And, and it's very clear. This is the only way anyone can be justified. Through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. So Paul has sought to show our need for justification. He's made this great claim that we are justified by faith in Christ. And then, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, in chapter 4, he sought to prove that Abraham himself, the very father of the Jewish people, that Abraham himself was, in fact, justified by faith apart from all works. And by proving that this was true for Abraham, Paul shows that justification by faith is, in fact, the way of salvation for all people. So for many chapters now, right? Paul has been engaging in some doctrinal labors. He has been making a clear argument that we need justification by faith. That we are, in fact, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that this was true even for Abraham. But we could still say, okay, so what? I I come to church today with heavy burdens pains, afflictions, sufferings, and I don't really care about that doctrine, right? I mean, it's a very interesting theological study. Thank you for providing it. It might help me someday get a good grade on a theology exam at Reformed Theological Seminary, which I don't plan to attend. But what difference does it make in the real world? when I'm troubled with cares and burdens, when I'm overwhelmed and stressed out and afflicted in various ways, what practical difference does such doctrine make? That's a good question. But here in Romans 5, Paul's going to argue, oh, believer, it makes all the difference. In these verses, Paul makes an argument for the benefits, the practical benefits of justification by faith. He begins the chapter, you will see, by saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, therefore, having been justified by faith, and then he's gonna say, we now have these benefits. And I hope we'll come to see that these benefits are real, and they are practical, And in fact, they are most applicable at the times of greatest trial. Here in these verses, Paul presents us with three benefits of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's consider these three benefits in turn. The first benefit is that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God is the first great benefit of justification by faith. Now, I think most of us, when we think of the word peace, we typically think of an emotional state of inner calm or tranquility. We might even think of just the absence of conflict in our lives. And, And these notions are not absent here, but they are not foundational to what Paul is speaking about. Now, when Paul speaks of peace here... He's speaking very explicitly, we see in the text, about peace with God. And he is referring not so much to a subjective state of mind or feeling, but he is talking about an objective state of relationship. Because the believer has been justified by faith in Christ, the believer now lives in an objective state of peace with God. And of course, the backdrop of such a state of peace is 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 reminding ourselves that by nature we are not at peace with God. No, because of our sin, we are by nature enemies of God, which Paul will say very clearly in verse 10. By nature, we are in fact alienated from God, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We are, as we have learned in the study of Romans, we are by nature under God's wrath and judgment. And we have seen that there is no amount of works or effort on our part that could propitiate or turn aside God's wrath. There are no works. There is no behavior that we could that we could exercise on our part that could reconcile us to God and overcome the alienation that our sin creates. By nature... We do not and cannot know God in truth, 1 Corinthians 2. By nature, we do not and cannot obey God in truth, Romans 8. No, by nature, we do not and we cannot love God, for we are, in fact, haters of God, and we are his enemies. But here, then, is the gospel, that in love, by grace... God has sent his own son to live the perfect life that we should have lived but could not. And then in sinless perfection, Jesus bore our sin in his body and then suffered the wrath and judgment of God the Father for our sin in our place. He then rose from the dead for our justification. So that now when one believes in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, one is in fact justified. One is declared to be in the right before God, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and through our faith in him. And this justification by faith not only grants us forgiveness of sin, which is great, it not only grants us a righteous verdict before the tribunal of God's judgment seat, which is great, but as Paul emphasizes here, it reconciles us to God and puts us in a right relationship with Him, a relationship of peace. Now, The Greek word here for peace in its Greco-Roman context really emphasized the absence of conflict. However, this Greek word was used to translate the Hebrew word for peace in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And that Hebrew word is a word that you might be familiar with. It's the word shalom. And, and in translating the Hebrew word shalom into this Greek word, most scholars will, will argue that that this Greek word then is kind of filled with and even transformed by the Hebrew concept of shalom. And that's important because shalom is not just the absence of conflict, but shalom is a state of right relationship and full-orbed blessing. Shalom doesn't just mean, ah, yeah, we don't fight. It means we're right with one another at the deepest level level possible. To be in a state of shalom is to exist in a state of love and wholeness with concern for welfare and comprehensive flourishing. And, and because we have been justified by faith in Christ, because God's wrath for our sin has been satisfied at the cross, because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us and received by faith, the Christian believer is now fully right with God. Not just from a legal standpoint, but from a deep relational standpoint. So that we can say, because of justification by faith, we are, we are friends of God. We are reconciled to God. So that He is for us, not against us. The believer who is justified by faith now lives in a state of blessedness with God. And this state of blessedness, this state of peace is not conditioned by how we feel or even how we act in the moment. No, it is a state that is objectively created by God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a state that can be accomplished in no other way. For as Paul adamantly states, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the key. We must know this is true before we will really feel that this is true. But when we know this to be true... This objective state of peace with God then becomes the foundation for our feeling of peace and tranquility. This is particularly true in times of trial, right? The key to experiencing peace in my inner being, tranquility in the midst of the storm, is knowing that such peace with God has already been achieved and established and secured by Jesus Christ. This peace has, has then been received by the believer through faith in Christ. So that the doctrinal reality of peace with God as a result of justification by faith is what then produces the experience of peace in my life. And even if my experience of peace waxes and wanes, the objective reality that the believer is at peace with God remains. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty awesome. And this is the first benefit of justification by faith it is the establishment and securing of the objective state of peace with God, which can then produce the experience of peace in my life. Now, the second major benefit of justification by faith, Paul says, is access into a state of grace in all my dealings with God. Through Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, we have obtained, Paul says, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, grace, as many of you will know, is the unmerited favor and love of God. And by nature, once again, as sinners, we do not live before God in a state of grace. We live in a state of judgment and wrath. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that by nature we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're under the power of Satan. We're subject to the power of our sin. And by nature, we are children of wrath. But by grace... God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us through His life, death, and resurrection, so that when we believe in Jesus, we're not only justified by faith, we're not only reconciled to God in a state of peace and shalom, but we are ushered into a relationship with God that is fully and completely ordered by His grace. So that God relates to the believer in the context of unmerited favor. In which he loves us. Not because we deserve such love. Not because we have merited such love. No, he loves us because in Christ, he chooses to love us in Christ. And he welcomes us. He welcomes us into fellowship with himself by grace. So that now we, we live in a state of grace in which we have access to God himself because he has granted us such access. The God who has forgiven our sin and imputed to us the righteousness of Christ, the God who has reconciled us to himself in peace, this God now gives us access to himself by grace. And again, this state of grace is not something we move in and out of based on our behavior. It is the state of being in which the believer lives all his or her days. So that even when we sin, we can come to God in confession, seeking his mercy, knowing that we are in fact, through Christ, in a state of grace in which we have access to God. This knowledge, this doctrinal knowledge, is of incalculable practical benefit to us, particularly in times of trial. Perhaps no one has said it better than the author of Hebrews, writing in Hebrews 4. He writes, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, which I think Paul might add, to which we have access because we are justified by faith. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ, it has the direct benefit of granting us peace and wholeness and reconciliation with God. And it grants us the benefit of of direct access to God in a relationship that exists on the basis of His grace. A grace which does not fluctuate based on our behavior, but a grace in which we stand. A grace that is constant because of what Jesus Christ has done. In this grace, we have free access to God Himself in which he promises to grant us grace and mercy in our time of need. And I tell you again, this is of immeasurable practical benefit to know that through Christ, God relates to me by grace. So that by grace, I can come to God freely. He grants me access to his presence all the time. I can confess my sin. I can ask for his help. I can rest in his presence because through justification by faith, I have access into this grace in which I stand. And this too is awesome. But it's not all. For because of justification by faith, the believer not only has peace with God, number one, Not only has access into a state of grace, number two, but thirdly and finally, the believer has joy, grounded in hope, and secured by love. The believer has joy, grounded in hope, and secured by love. Now this joy, as we see in the text, has two distinct components. The first is that because of justification by faith, Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? The glory of God here refers to the glory that is God's own. It is the glory that belongs to him and will be fully and completely manifest in his utter and complete triumph over all sin and death on the last day. This glory will be manifest both in his justice against his enemies and in the salvation of his people and in the making of all things new. This glory then is the great occasion for the believer's joy because the scripture promises that not only will God himself be glorified on the last day, But God has promised, that is, as part of the manifestation of his ultimate glory, he will fully conform believers into the likeness of Christ, who is the very image of his glory. God's ultimate glory in the salvation of his people is the ultimate cause for Christian joy. You see, God is going to do a future work of exceedingly great glory in which the believer will be glorified in Christ as part of that glory. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 4, in which he says, the slight momentary afflictions of this life are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And when we know something of that glory, we rejoice. And our joy flows in a more full-orbed way from our understanding that we have, in fact, been justified by faith in Christ and not because of our own works. Because, you see, being justified by faith, apart from our works, reminds us, reassures us that the ultimate glory in the life of the believer is, in fact, secure. It's not wishful thinking. No, it's a secure hope hope that is not rooted in our works, which of course is not secure at all, but it's a hope in God's faithfulness and God's gracious promise to save us through Jesus Christ and to glorify His own name and to glorify believers through the glorifying of His own name. We have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in secure hope that Jesus will have the ultimate victory and we will participate in that victory. We rejoice that we will be saved forevermore, that we will be transformed from glory into glory. God will glorify himself in the glorification of the believer in which he conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And in this hope of heavenly glory, we rejoice right now. And this is a fruit of justification by faith. But we also see here in the text that this joy, rooted in secure hope, has another component to it. For Paul says we, we not only rejoice now in the hope of secure heavenly glory, which we will taste someday. But he says we also rejoice in our present sufferings. Okay, so you want the rubber of Christian doctrine to hit the road of practical living? Here it is. Because we all face sufferings and trials of various kinds. And I think the most particular kind of suffering that Paul has in mind here, as he uses this particular Greek word, is the suffering that occurs in particular ways because of fidelity to Christ, when we suffer for Jesus' sake. But it's in the face of suffering, this particular suffering, but I think we could say in all suffering, where the payoff of Christian doctrine really comes into focus. Because you see, I think there are many people, including many professing Christians, many perhaps here today, who do not have a robust understanding of justification by faith and all of its benefits. And one result of the the lack of this understanding is that when we face trials and sufferings, when we face persecutions and afflictions, we often feel like God has abandoned us or rejected us or is neglecting us. And this feeling we can become convinced of so that it can become the cause of inner turmoil and anger, and bitterness, and doubt, and even despair. We begin to question whether God loves us, whether he is for us. We wonder why God would allow this, and why he does not remedy the situation right away. And we often feel this way, because I think deep down we have a a doctrinal view, which we might not voice, but we believe, that that we think God's primary purpose and promise is to make our lives happy and our circumstances pleasant right now. We often think that our good behavior then should further secure our earthly happiness and, and our pleasantness and our comfort. And so when we suffer, particularly if we suffer for doing good, Well, then the whole system of our expectations begins to come unraveled and the the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God as we understand him comes into question. But brothers and sisters, this is where sound doctrine has the power to transform our experience of suffering. Because sound doctrine reinforces for us in a foundational way, even in suffering, That God loves us. Not because we deserve his love. For we do not. But he loves us because he chooses to pour out his love upon us by grace. In love by grace he sent his son to save us. In love he has given us his spirit to work faith in us. So that we believe in Jesus Christ and are in fact justified by faith in Christ. In which we are forgiven of all our sin in Christ. And we are declared to be righteous before God in Christ. In Christ, we know we have peace with God. We're reconciled to God. In Christ, we have access to God, access into this grace in which we stand. In Christ, we have joy because of the secure hope that God will glorify himself and glorify us in the complete salvation of his people on the last day. And in light of all this, when we encounter suffering now, then we can know, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these afflictions, these sufferings, are, are not because God has abandoned us. They are not in any way because God does not love us. They are not because God is unfaithful or unkind or unjust. No, we know that we are justified by faith in Christ. We know that we have peace with God. We know that we have access into this grace in which we stand and we know that we have joy in the hope of the glory of God. And in light of all this, we necessarily then see our suffering in a very different way. We know that this suffering comes to us, as we sang in our first hymn, from the hand of a loving, gracious, victorious God. With whom we are at peace. With whom we live in a state of grace and access. So we can know that these sufferings ultimately serve a faithful, peaceful, gracious, and glorious purpose. But what then is that purpose? Paul spells it out. He says, suffering produces endurance. Endurance here is not merely passive resignation, but it's an active and strong patience in which we look beyond the immediate suffering to the glorious end result. Such patience and endurance, Paul says, produces character. You see, the very act of patiently enduring suffering through faith in Jesus Christ, it forms us and shapes us to be more like Jesus. The practice of patient endurance, like Jesus practiced, helps to form Christ-like character in us. And this character, Paul says, then produces further hope. You see, we set out and we are empowered to endure trials with patience because we have the hope of glory. But Paul says here, the more we endure, the more hope we obtain. Hope sets us on the journey and hope is part of the culmination of the journey. And Paul says, this hope does not disappoint. It does not put us to shame. Because we know the ultimate victory of God is secure And this hope is itself secured by the active experience of God's love, which Paul says has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, do you see how all of this is connected? God gives us the Spirit, enabling us to believe in Jesus Christ. By and through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified. The result of this justification is that we have peace with God, we have access into a state of grace, and we have joy in the hope of eternal glory. This faith, this peace, this grace, this joy, this hope, then enables us to do what would otherwise be impossible. To actually rejoice in suffering. Not because we're masochistic and we think the suffering is somehow good in and of itself. No. But because we know on the basis of sound doctrine, we know that the God who loves us and gave his son for us, the God with whom we are at peace, the God with whom we have access into a state of grace, the God who will ultimately triumph over sin and death in us and for us. We know this God is at work in our suffering to make us more like Jesus, to conform us to Christ's own holy character. And so we rejoice because we know that this work of God cannot and will not fail. God began a good work in us, and he will see it through to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We who are justified by faith in Christ, we will be glorified through that same faith in Christ. So we can rejoice now. We can rejoice as a people who are justified by faith in Christ. We can rejoice as a people who have peace with God through Christ. We can rejoice as a people who have access to the God of grace in Christ. We can rejoice as a people who have the secure hope of heavenly glory in Christ. And we can rejoice as a people who know That God is at work in our suffering to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. So, brothers and sisters, this is but a small taste of the benefits of Christian doctrine. Where we lay hold of the the fruit of understanding of what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Christ. And may God give us the grace that we would be lovingly filled with His Spirit so that we might believe in Christ and have increasing understanding of the full implications and benefits of that faith. That we might not only confess the truth about Christ, but through... Faith in Christ, may we live lives of peace and grace and joy and hope and love. Lives of patient endurance, even in the most acute trials and sufferings. May the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ produce in us a sound confession of faith and the full-orbed obedience of faith. May he do this for his own glory and for our own very practical good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would be content with so little. If you just told us a handful of things to do, we might go try to work on them, but we would miss the whole point. Oh Lord. Help us to understand the deep doctrinal truths of the scripture. But not just so we can know them and talk about them. But that we might know these truths in such a way that we experience the transforming benefit of these truths. In a full orbed life of obedience. May it be so. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.